Welcome to Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, a podcast that asks, are we ready to reset the landscape of public safety? Whether you're a veteran of criminal justice, a newcomer who wants to foster change for the next generation, or someone actively involved in the field grappling with the complexities of decision-making, you're invited to the conversation. In each episode, you'll hear from a panel of four highly respected criminal justice thought leaders for an unscripted, unedited, and vulnerable discussion about the future changes needed for policing. Together, they hold more than 100 years of experience and are using our insight to help evolve practices, policies, training, and community relationships. They're challenging themselves and you to get introspective and question the status quo. Let's dive into today's topic. Welcome back to The Den. In this episode, we're joined by Rodney Monroe, former police chief who spent 22 years with the Washington, D.C. Metro Police Department before serving as leadership in the agencies of Charlotte Mecklenburg, North Carolina, Richmond, Virginia, and Macon, Georgia. He is known as the Reformer Chief, focused on giving the community a voice and how they're policed. He's helped dozens of agencies hit the reset button on their policing practices. Let's hear more from him on how it all started. I can remember when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, I just had a fascination with police. We lived in Prince George's County at the time, and we lived right on the corner of uh, Vine and Nova Street. And it was a kind of a thoroughfare. Nova Avenue ran all the way through from one end of the neighborhood to the other. And so when police came, they, they would always come up Nova Avenue. And I could sit on the porch and I could see them. And they drove these Plymouth theories. And you can hear them two or three blocks away. And you said, here comes the police, because you can just tell by that sound, because nobody else in the neighborhood had a car like that to, that sounded like that. So, you know, I would always just sit up and, you know, just, just watch when they came and, you know, they had their window down, I could hear the radio. And, and then I could sometimes sit on the hill outside of my yard that was right at the stop sign. So it was a hill that kind of looked down to the street. And when they pulled up to the stop sign, I could look in the car and I could see all their stuff. But then at some point that wasn't enough for me. And uh, I wasn't getting my my true fix of, of, of seeing the police. So I came up with the bright idea that I would call the police on myself. <laughs> that way I could get them on demand. I never called in anything serious. It was somebody breaking windows or running up and down the street or, or something like that. And when I would hear them come, I would run and hide and then just watch them. They'll get out of the car, they'll look around and whatnot. And I did that, I don't know, maybe four or five times over the course of maybe a month or so. And then I got scared because one day they came and they were like, looking, I felt they were looking for me. (laughs) (laughs) What I didn't realize is, you know, I'm giving the same address or the same. 
<laughs> so I guess technically I was committing a crime, but I guess, you know, I did it maybe about three or four times. And then I, I realized that, you know, they're looking for me. They figured out, hey, somebody's calling. So I never did that again. But I still just kept a, a fascination with, with the police. And I think when I, t I can't remember how old I was, it may have been 18, but I, I, I signed up for police ride along. And uh, with that, I was able to ride with the police for a whole shift. First, they, you know, they said, well, you can do it for a couple of hours. I said, no, I want to do it for a whole shift. And I did it once and I had so much fun with the officer and, and you know, and seeing, you know, the different calls and just, the, you know, listening to the radio. And, and I just had an infatuation with that. And uh, as soon as I, as soon as I, even before I turned 21, I, you know, I was applying for the police department. And with that, you know, I had to fill out this long, I guess, personal history. And mind you, I didn't, didn't put in there that I called the police on myself because I didn't know it was against the law at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't commit a crime if you don't know it was a crime. So I'm, I'm answering everything honestly. And I had broken my arm, my wrist. My dad brought me a motorcycle, probably when I turned 16, 17, started to drive. Instead of buying me a car, he bought me a motorcycle, a Yamaha 175. I can't tell you how many times I fell off of that thing. But I had the tendency sometime of, of you know, I would lean over the seat and it was a kickstart. And I would just push down the handle of the kickstart with my hand with those bikes, sometimes they kick back. And sure enough, I, I did it one time and it kicked back and I broke my wrist. And I stated that on the personal history. And then with that, I gotten a notice that they had rejected me because they needed me to have a doctor. Mind you, this is when I was 16. And so he talked about four, five, six years earlier to find the doctor to say that that injury would not affect my ability of, to become a police officer, that, you know, it had healed or whatever. And I'm saying to myself, how in the heck I'm going to do that? You know, I went to emergency room and, you know, how am I going to, you know, find a doctor that, that would write something up like that? So I just forgot about it. Fast forward eight, nine months later, I get a call from the recruiter saying, hey, you know, you're still interested and, you know, you just need to, you know, find a doctor to take a look at you and find, you know, make sure that you're okay. I said, so I don't have to find the doctor that put the cast and everything on my arm and said, no, you just need to get it checked out, make sure that, you know, it's okay. So, you know, for, at the time, my mom was a nurse at Howard University Hospital and she knew plenty of doctors. So she got me in to see a, a, a orthopedic doctor who, examined my arm and wrote a letter of prescription saying that, you know, my arm was fine and would not affect my ability of being a police officer. And I took that to my recruiter. And two months later, I'm in the academy. You know, I decided if I was going to go, I was going to go big. And D.C. was the uh, largest police department in the area. There were 3,500 officers in Prince George's County. You know, I later came to realize that 
they were the bad boys. You know, you start talking about police brutality and things of that nature. A lot of Prince George's County police officers were being accused of that. And they had one incident where a kid by the name of Terrence Johnson was severely beaten up by the police and they they lied about it and whatnot. And the family came out, you know, six months, eight months later that, and, and what happened is he wound up after, after the beating, he wound up taking one of the police officers' guns and shooting and killing him. And he went to jail, but, you know, it later came out that he was, he was a kid. He was a 16-year-old kid. And they later found out that he had been beaten by the police and whatnot. And uh, eventually he was let out of jail and, and so forth. So that kind of, you know, soured me on Prince George's County. So I went with D.C. That was in March of 1979. And the academy was a self-paced academy. It wasn't one in which you went in, you went in as a class where you had classes with, so I, I guess I had, you know, maybe 25 people within my, my class, but it was a, a self-paced class whereby you could test your way out, you know, throughout different modules within the academy. So I started the academy on March 19th, and I graduated June 13th. And it wasn't a ceremony. Once I graduated, I was on the street. I had my assignment, and um, it was assigned to a, you know, a master patrol officer when I, the day I graduated. It was no formal ceremony or you know, here you go or whatever. Nope, you're on your own. I was assigned to uh, the Georgetown section of, uh, of of the city. That's where I started, the second district. I was excited. My first day, I actually finished my last test that on June 13th that morning. And that evening, I was assigned to the second district, went to roll call, went out on the street, got a call for accident at 14th and K Street, Northwest. Get there, and there's a bus on the corner. You know, we approach, there's a bus on the corner, and I said, no, I just don't look bad. I don't see any cars or, or whatnot. <laughs> and I get on the other side of the bus, and what I see then is this woman who had stepped off of the curb, and you know those, those big Greyhound buses had two sets of wheels in the back? And somehow she got caught in between those wheels and it just pulled her into those wheels and kind of grinded her up and spit her out in the, in the curb. And they gave me, you know, they didn't give me a traffic post down the street or whatever. You stand here and you protect the body. I said, oh, my God. And, I, and that's what I saw my first day on the street. And, and I sat there for a couple of hours before the ME came and fairly scooped up the pieces and whatnot. But she, she was literally disfigured. And that's what I had to endure my first day on the job. But it, it, it didn't turn me against wanting to, wanting to be a police officer. But, but you know, I prided myself, you know, they had certain incentives. I, I had Tuesdays and Wednesdays as my day off. Rotated every two weeks from, because let me get this right, because it was a short change, from days to midnights to, to evenings. 
days to midnights to evening. Because after my two weeks of on a Sunday, so I'm working on a Sunday. So I get off day work on a Sunday at three o'clock and had to be back to work at 10 o'clock that night when I'm coming off the day work shift. But I like working the weekends because that's when the senior officers were off. Once I was certified, then I, I was pretty assured of getting in a car. You know, I didn't have to walk a footbeat because I walked a footbeat most of the time once I got out of training. So Friday, Saturday, I was definitely in a, in a scout car. That's what they called them, scout cars back then in those, in those days. They weren't patrol cars, they were scout cars. Scout 75, Scout 77, Scout 78. Those were one of the three cars that I will always, always be in. And then, you know, back then you had incentives. You know, whoever wrote the most tickets, whoever, you know, had the most arrests and whatnot, you were the one that were getting in the cars. You know, I can remember I would sit in roll call and I would get two ticket books that had 50 tickets each in it. And on Fridays and Saturdays, I would fill out, in roll call, I would fill out the date, I would sign the ticket, I would do everything but put the location of the violation and the violation itself. And then I go out on the street board and I start papering the town. And Georgetown on a Friday and Saturday night is a busy place. It was a feast. I mean, you know, people parked everywhere and and I just papered the town. And within an hour, hour and a half, I've written a hundred tickets. So so no one could ever catch me. And then when it came to arrest, Friday, again, Friday and Saturday night, people love coming to Georgetown. Drinking and fighting and disorderly, crazy horse, all of the bars along M Street and Wisconsin Avenue. All you have to do is sit out on the corner at midnight and somebody's going to start fighting and whatnot. And there's your lockups, you know, <laughs> disorderly conduct. And then with that, you know, I got Fridays and Saturdays off because I was a top producer and I was always in a car after that. And, you know, and now, you know, so when people talk about quotas and stuff, Hey, buddy, I'm against that because I know what I know what people can wind up doing. To people, when you put you put what well, hey, you want you want you want the good assignment, you go out. No, 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 that is not a good thing to happen. So I, I learned that I learned that the, the the hard way, I guess. I spent a year in patrol, then I went to plain clothes, still in in the second district. I never had an assignment more than one to two years and, and because I wanted to do everything. So I was a plainclothes officer. I had a partner and we bought a 1963 Chevy. That was our tack car that we used to ride around Georgetown, the second district, looking for burglars and whatnot. Here it is, two black guys and riding around Georgetown in a 63 Chevy. I, th- I don't think it was anybody there that didn't know we were police officers, but <laughs> but I did that for one year, and then I went to detectives. And while I was in detectives, three years you could you could take the sergeant exam. So in three years, I took the sergeant exam, and there was two part. You had to take the exam, and then you had a assessment center. So I took the exam. I came out thirty six on the sergeant's list. After assessment, I came down to 13, and I was promoted within the next month. 
And lo and behold, where would they send this, this eager beaver wanting to get out there in, in, the, in the street? They send me to the helicopter branch. So I go to the helicopter branch that's located at National Airport. Not in the city, but National Airport in Virginia. So the only time I saw the city was from a helicopter. It was interesting because we, had, we were in a hangar. The, the department had six helicopters, seven helicopters, all Vietnam vintage helicopters. They all came from the military, the Bell 47s, and it had a big Huey helicopter too. And, you know, but I flew every day. They trained me as an observer and, you know, I, you know, would go up every day and, and fly missions, you know, an hour at a time. But it was the most laid back job that you can imagine because you go up for an hour and then you come back and then the rest of the day, they just ate. They just ate food. They were like firemen. And, and, and everybody there was 20 or 25 years on the department, the lieutenant, the other sergeant, the pilots, they were all military. Cause they had flown those same helicopters in Vietnam. So, and here this young whippersnapper, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to figure it all out. And then uh, six months later, they transferred me over to special ops. Helicopter branch was a part of special ops, but it was a separate, separate branch of special ops. So they sent me over to special events which I loved because you had citywide access and the only thing you did was escort the president, vice president, handle parades, demonstrations. So you were all over the, over the place and I enjoyed that. And that's where I met Steve. That's where I met uh, Steve because Steve was at emergency management who was the group that authorized all of the parade permits and special events and, and, and so forth. So working with him, we got to know one another and we had some good times as far as, you know, managing special events because they depended on us quite a bit to, to make sure the event went off well. And so we had a pretty good re relationship. And then two years after that, I got promoted to Lieutenant and was number one on the list. I was number one after the written test and I was number one after the assessment and nobody could believe or understand how I did it. And I really didn't know, understand how I did it, but I had just read and when SOD, when you're sitting on a detail and you're sitting outside the White House waiting for the president to leave, you know, supposed to leave at six o'clock, but he doesn't leave until seven o'clock, you get a lot of reading in. So I always had my study materials in the car with me and got a chance to really study hard, made lieutenant, and uh, wound up going to uh, work as the administrative lieutenant for Ike Fullwood, the assistant chief of police. The scariest guy on the police de department. They call him Big Ike. <laughs> he was the uh, patrol commander. And that, I learned a lot. That's where I learned really how to be a police executive because he got things done. And he was a kind of an in-your-face kind of guy. He was so forthright in what he wanted and, and, and what he believed should happen that, you know, he always pushed you. He always, he always drove you to do better. It got to one point where I said, you know, Chief, I want to get a transfer. I just can't seem to do anything right working for you. And he called me in his office and he said, if you weren't doing your job, you, weren't, you wouldn't be here. 
And, you know, it's not my job to make you feel good about yourself. <laughs> I say, damn, okay. But his whole <laughs> philosophy was that the more stress that you were able to put on a person to see how they perform, that you it always made you perform at an optimal level because you had to always think. You could never get comfortable with what you were doing that allowed you to perform better. And he said that pressure makes you perform better. And he, he was right because he kept the pressure on you. And Harold, you, you saw some of that when, when I got to Charlotte, but I never forgot that. And, and, you know, you always want people thinking, trying new things, trying to figure out things and not just be accepting of things because that's the way they, they are. And, and he's the one that drove me for that. And we became good friends, good mentors. He was a mentor of mine for, for years, up to the day he died a few years ago. But um, a great mentor. He ultimately became the chief of police. He brought me over to his office as, as, as his executive assistant in the chief's office and ultimately promoted me to my, my last rank of, uh, of captain. I was a captain in 10 years, which was good. I was a civil service rank, so I would always have that rank. And by year 12, 13, I was a, I was a, now I was in the exempt rights uh, as an inspector. And in my 16th year, I was an assistant chief of police in 16 years on the young assistant chiefs on the department. Good thing and bad thing. Because I, I rose so fast within the department, I skipped some critical assignments. Never had I been in a district other than the two years as a patrol officer. Never went back to a district in those, in those 12 years. I went from the district to special ops, to the assistant chief's office, to the chief's office, to back to special operations in charge of the SWAT team, to becoming the commander of SOD, to becoming the assistant chief of police. It wasn't until Charles Ramsey came to DC. And when he came to DC, and again, he came to DC under some real concerning, a real concerning time where you had a chief of police, Larry Soulsby, was under investigation. Then they, Marion Barry had just made his comeback from being in jail, and now he was reelected as mayor. And he appointed Sonia Proctor as the chief of police wanted to make favor, so he promoted her. And then she kind of fell by the wayside because, not because of crime, but because there was so much disconnect within the department itself. Nobody, it was no cohesiveness within the department. So they brought in Chief Ramsey. And, and Chief Proctor and I, we did not get along. She was a chief, I was assistant chief. We did not get along. And when Ramsey came in, People told him that we did not get along. Her and I did not get along. And <laughs> I guess within a couple, three or four months of, of Chief Ramsey getting there, 
I was demoted from assistant chief to a commander. And I took that pretty hard initially. But when he did it, I told him that I was going to be the best district commander that he ever had. And he sent me to the 6th district. He even referenced that, you know, I had never been in the district before. But all in all, I wasn't being demoted for cause. You know, I was in an accepted rank. So I actually got a pay raise. I got demoted and got a pay raise because I was at the first step of assistant chief because I was so young. But being demoted to a commander, I had to go to the highest step as a commander, which was higher than first step assistant chief. So I got a pay raise. I used to always tease everybody. I said, I got demoted. I'm the only person that got demoted and got a pay raise. But uh, I went to the sixth district and I told Ramsey that I was going to be the best district commander that, that he had. And I went there at 6th District, Southeast D.C., one of the toughest districts. And we averaged almost 90 homicides a year in the 6th District, just in one small geographical area, 90 homicides. Had six public housing developments there and so forth. Little to no relationship with the community. And I worked my butt off trying to really engage the citizens. You know, I was able to put my own team together. And inside of a year, I think I was there two years, we reduced homicides by over 60%. Crime went down nearly 40%. And people wanted to come to the 6th District. And I made a lot of partnerships with a lot of different organizations that come in to work with youth, ex-offenders. We had an alliance of concerned men. The U.S. attorney at the time, Eric Holder, had come out and, you know, to to be a part of one of the programs that we had with some ex-offenders. The Alliance of Concerned Men were a group of men that had served anywhere from 15 to 20 years, and they were working with a lot of youth, and we had partnered with them. Then after two years, they had asked me to come to work for them. So I had decided that I was going to retire. I had my 20 years. I was going to retire. And I was going to go to work for this organization, working not only in D.C., but around the country with uh, at-risk youth. And I went into Ramsey and told him that I was, you know, putting in my papers, I was going to retire and, and whatnot. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Rodney, you know, I made a mistake two years ago. I listened to some people that I shouldn't listen to. Ultimately, you went to the 6th District. You did a wonderful job. I don't want to lose you. He went to his desk drawer pulled out a badge, gave me the badge, and said, I'm going to promote you back to assistant chief. And he said, and with that, I know you have a passion of working with youth. You can create your own unit within the department in order to work with with, with at-risk youth within the department. You set it up, you describe it, you tell me who you want to work with you, but I just don't want to want you to, to, to leave. I said, okay, I can do that. And then... I know this sounds selfish, but then I wound up getting even an even bigger pay raise because now, because I'm at the highest step as a district commander, I have to go to the third step, fourth step as an assistant chief. So in two years, I got to the fourth step of an assistant chief, which I would have not done until it would have taken me eight years as assistant chief to get there. So they only had five steps. So I did it in, in two years. I got to the 
next to the top step in, in, in two years. But, you know, I created the unit. Uh, we did some great things within the city. <clears throat> Office of Youth Violence Prevention. And the way we, we kind of structured ourselves was to work with the courts, juvenile services, schools, and police. We developed, if you ever work with juveniles, there's <clears throat> laws that prevent you, different agencies from sharing information with one another. But because we brought the courts in, I was able to get a and our judges in the district are federal judges. Our attorneys are U.S. attorneys. So I was able to partner with, with one of the federal judges who was over, over the youth court to issue a court order allowing these four entities to share information. And it was somewhat historic that it had never been done before, but we found a way to do it to allow us to share information health records, school records, social services records, so that we wanted to be able to know everything about at-risk youth and, and not be wondering what this agency is doing with them and them not being able to share that information. We were able to you know, partner with a lot of organizations in the community, and we really wanted to focus on some of the lesser name organizations, some of the real street-oriented organizations that were in the neighborhoods, that were based in the neighborhoods, that weren't just helicoptering services into a neighborhood. And, uh, and quite naturally, they needed funding. And so, you know, that's one of the things that Eric Holder helped facilitate for us, identifying some funding, federal funding for some of these organizations. And not a whole lot, lot of money, but, you know, $25,000, $30,000 went a long way you know, for a neighborhood program. We established football teams within the uh, housing developments. We were able to buy them uniforms. We were able to fix up fields within their neighborhoods. And with that, you know, it allowed all of those public housing neighborhoods where, where most of our violence occurred against one another allowed us to create a, a safe passage for individuals to, to travel throughout those different communities. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about today's topic, idea analytics, or work with them, visit their website, analyticsbyidea.com. There you'll find their latest blog posts, case studies, and contact information. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Conversations on Public Safety, The Den, on your preferred podcasting platform. See you next time.